All right. End of the first week or halfway through the first week, depending on how you want to look at it, since you're stuck with me for two hours today. Sorry. Um, so we'll be here till 9, 10, 11, almost 11 o'clock. I do, when I do the lectures today, I split them up sometimes a little bit differently, just so you know. I mean, I usually try to get, you, I'm usually picky on getting you out of here on time, just because I always hated when I had to rush to a class and a professor would decide to talk five minutes over into my time to get across campus. So I usually try to watch the time pretty carefully. Today's the one day I ne don't necessarily, if I'm in the middle of something, I might go 10 minutes longer into lab time just because it makes it easier to finish. So just in case you see me going past 9.50 today, it's possible depending on exactly where I get to in the, in, the, in, the, in the lecture. Normally I don't do that. Normally I try to wind it down so I get you out of here. So if you're going to another class on Mondays and Wednesdays, you don't have to worry about, about getting there. All right, we have a couple assignments. One due Monday is the extra credit assignment, which is assign subscribing to the podcast and then sending me an email from your Hawkmail account for that. Uh, we're about halfway. I think I got them from about half of you so far as of 7 or so this morning. So you can, if you don't have that done, I'll give you one more reminder on Monday. You can still do that. Don't forget to sign in for me. Um, so you can still, I'll still give you one more reminder on Monday if you get that done this weekend. Anybody who's done it and I've gotten your email, as of, uh, say, 7 or 7.30 this morning, I put your grades in. There's a few others that have emailed me since then. I don't know if it's from this class or one of the other classes, but I haven't, those haven't been put in yet. But you should see your points in there as soon as you, as soon as I do, as soon as I do it. Homework one is, I handed that out on Monday. That is due on Friday. That covers chapter zero that we're working on now and chapter one that we'll get to, we'll work on next week. And that is due next Friday. Quiz one on same chapters, chapter zero and one for you. You'll note when I put these up, I teach 103 right before this. So instead of writing it twice, you'll see 103 or 104. So if something applies, to, if it applies to this class, it'll be the 104, which is chapter zero and one. And that quiz will be available starting next Friday on those two chapters and will be available through, say, normally through Monday. In this case, because Monday's a holiday, I made it through Wednesday so I can remind you on Wednesday if you haven't taken the quiz yet. First exam I have scheduled in for September 7th and I'm trying to get it in there. I may adjust, I'm, I may adjust the date to the Monday depending on exactly what we get through because we do have the Labor Day holiday in there so that loses us one class period. But depending on exactly how it works, I may either cut down the number of chapters, I might just do it on chapters 0 and 1 or 0 and 1 in the first half of 2, depending on exactly how we get there. I just I like to get that first quiz in before the drop deadline, which is the Monday. So I like to have the first exam that you've actually, that way you'll have had a homework done and graded and back, and you'll have had a quiz done and graded, and you'll have an exam done and graded, and you have not a real good idea of how you're doing, but you have some sort of feel whether you absolutely hate my stuff and you just want to get out of here while you still can, or, okay, I'm fine and you at least have some idea. So I will try to get you an exam in before that deadline, which is the, which is the 10th. So I'm putting it for the 7th for right now. That may change depending on exactly what we get through next week. Questions on assignments? Okay. Picture of the day for today is the moon meets the morning star. So this picture was taken from Eastern Asia. It wasn't something we could see from uh, the US. 
But this was actually, you see, you see the moon there, number of images. So they took the camera out there and took an image every, left, the, left it open, took an image. A few minutes later, took another image. So about every, I think it was every 10 minutes or so, they'd take an image to watch how the moon's position changed as the moon rose here in the sky. And the other object that you see, especially if you look at the uppermost images of the moon, you see a little a bright star there. That's actually the planet Venus, or a morning star right now. Venus is very prominent. It actually got to its best in the morning a little over a week ago. So it's still very nicely visible in the morning sky. If you're up really early before sunrise, you can see Venus out there in the, in the east before the sun rises. But what happened here, and if you notice, you look at the images up there, Venus is further away from the moon. Here it's closer, 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 closer. Where did it go? Well, right here in this middle section, it's behind the moon. And while you don't see it very well on here, if you pull up the image and look at it in detail on the screen, you can actually see that Venus, when you get down to these couple images, you can actually see Venus is onto the other side of the moon. So what happened here is that the moon passed right in front of Venus. So that's what we call an occultation. It blocked out the light from Venus. A major example of an occultation that you might have heard of is an eclipse. Right? The moon passes in front of the sun and blocks out the light from the sun. Well, the moon can pass in front of lots of other objects. In fact, any two, bless you, any two astronomical objects, you know, one can pass in front of another. And you often see this, especially with the moon, just because the moon is so much larger. It's got a bigger area to be able to block out things. But even the planets will pass in front of stars at times and block out their light. And they're very interesting for astronomers to study because you can learn about the object that is Block being blocked out. You can learn something about how that is formed. In fact, we could learn about Venus looking at this and try to be able to study it a little bit better. Now it's easy because we can send a spacecraft there. Before you couldn't, this was the only way to learn things. And in fact, things like this, occultations like this, and the transits of Venus, which occurred in June, where the moon, where this Venus passed right in front of the sun, helped us to understand that Venus had an atmosphere. You know, we know that now because we've been to Venus, we've had other methods to study, but hundreds of years ago that was the only way to be able to understand and to learn about some of these objects. Another one that we learned through an occultation was the rings of Uranus. Back in the late 1970s, Uranus was going to pass in front of a star. And astronomers were excited to try to learn about the structure of Uranus. That was before we'd gotten a spacecraft out there. So we're going to learn more about that. And they actually had their equipment on in time and were able to detect that there were actually a set of rings there that we never saw before. Were not discovered until 1977. They were unknown, even though we'd known about Uranus for almost 200 years. The planet had been discovered almost 200 years before. They're not big bright rings like the ones around Saturn, but they're there. And we now know that each of the large planets out there has a set of rings. So again, some of these things that we see here, pretty picture here showing Venus and the moon, getting closer, closer together and then passing, moon passing in front of Venus and then separating are some things that astronomers have used in history to be able to study the planets and be able to learn more about them. Questions? No? No? All right. We'll go back to chapter zero. Chapter zero. We were looking at this last time. <coughs> So I was talking about the angular measures and how we measured angles in the sky. So we divided, we took a circle. My full circle was 360 degrees. 
That's much too big. A degree is much too big of an angle for most things that we measure in, this, measure in the sky. If you're trying to measure the size of an object in the sky, it's all a lot less than, than, a, than a one degree. The moon, the sun are about half of a degree in size. So, you know, there's, the, there's that, cut that in half. That's about how big the moon or the sun appear on the sky. So astronomers have divided that much the way we divide time. You divide degrees into 60 minutes called arc minutes as to differentiate them from time minutes. So you take each of those degrees, divide it into 60 pieces, and that's one arc minute. A couple arc minutes would be typically the size of one of the planets. So if you're from the Earth, if you took, the, took a telescope, they'd be a few arc minutes in size. So one of those degrees, again, half of that would be the moon. The planets would be talking about a couple of arc minutes, so much, much smaller. We still need to be able to measure smaller angles on the sky. And astronomers have taken and not only split that, the degree up into minutes of arc, but they took each arc minute and split it up into 60 pieces. So you can measure even smaller angles. Very, very tiny, and an arc second is the smallest. So take that one degree, you divide it in 3,600 pieces, 60 minutes, each of those 60 minutes into 60 seconds, meaning that there's 3,600 arc seconds in one degree. Some of the things that astronomers try to measure are tiny fractions of an arc second. So very, very small angles that we're trying to measure. And that's why they use these terms of form. Instead of using this point zero 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 something degrees, it's easier to say just a few arc, a couple of arc seconds, or a fraction of an arc second. And that's the, just the way we measure angles. Now the angular size of an object is not like a physical size. You're used to saying something is so big. You know, the ruler is 12 inches long, right? Well, an angular size depends on where it is. It depends on how big it is, but it also depends on how far away it is from you. If I bring the ruler closer to you, it gets bigger, right? Looks angular size, looks bigger and bigger and bigger. If I take it further away, it looks smaller and smaller and smaller. The angular size will change. So it's not something that's fixed. It works fine for the surface of the Earth, but if we, we say that the sun is 30 arc minutes in size, and you go to Mars, well, sun isn't 30 arc minutes in size. It's now smaller because you've gotten further away from the sun. If you go out to Pluto, well, sun's still there. It's still there. It's still a very, very bright object, the brightest thing in the sky. But it's no longer near as big as it looks in the sky as it does on the Earth. Conversely, if you go to Mercury, sun's a lot bigger than 30. The sun will be a couple degrees in size in the sky. So sun will be much, much bigger. So it really depends on how big it is. It does matter the size, but it also depends on the distance, how far you are away from that object. Okay, and then I'd promised I was going to come back because we'd looked at the coordinates and I'd given you these last time and just formally defined them here. This is how we define the two coordinates that astronomers use. Now we don't go through and really, you'll use them in a couple of labs, but I don't really have you do any detailed calculations with them in this class. Declination is just how far you are north or south of the celestial equator. So if you recall, celestial equator is the Earth's equator projected out to the sky. So there's the Earth. Earth's equator projected to the sky is the celestial equator. That's a declination of zero. So if you're on the celestial equator, declination is exactly equal to zero. Just like if you're on the equator, your latitude is exactly equal to zero. If you go further north, up above the celestial equator, that's a positive declination going up to 90 degrees at the North Celestial Pole 
as compared to 0 to 90 degrees of latitude on the Earth going up to the North Pole. Uh, south of the equator, it's going to be a, it's given as a negative number. So you can go 0 degrees to negative 90 degrees when you get to the South Celestial Pole. Can't have a declination that's greater than 90 degrees. Because after you get up to the North Celestial Pole, right, and got up as high as you can go, all you can do is go back down. You're heading back down closer to the equator again. So 90 degrees is the maximum you can get to. Negative 90 degrees is as far south as you can get. So declination, again, is just like latitude on the Earth, how far you are north or south of the celestial equator. Right ascension, here's where we try to confuse people. Not the first time astronomers will try to confuse you. Or not the last time, I should say. We'll see, we'll see it again. But right ascension isn't measured in degrees. On Earth, we measure latitudes and longitude in degrees. You know, Washington, 39 degrees north, 77 degrees west. You know, we have some, they're both numbers, and are both degrees. In right ascension, we actually measure it in hours, minutes, and seconds. So it's measured in time units. And it's measured from the position where the sun is at the vernal equinox. Vernal equinox is the first day of spring. So the position of the sun at the first day of spring where that happens to be is where we measure the right ascension from. Why? Well, that's just what astronomers have picked. When you pick longitude, we measure longitudes on Earth from the meridian that goes through Greenwich, England. Goes through an observatory at Greenwich. So there's a line, an imaginary line there that goes through, through Greenwich, England, and that's where we define longitude to be zero. There's no well-defined line like the equator when you're going east and west. You have to pick one. And what was done a long time ago is that you know, each nation had their own prime meridian. They had their own place where they measured longitude from. So for the French, it went through Paris. For the English, it went through London. Uh, Spanish would have gone through Madrid you know, to go through their capital. That's where it is. But it would make things difficult, if you can imagine, trying to communicate you know, where, what's the longitude. Well. We have to convert from one to the other. So at one point they went and agree everybody, they got everybody to agree that this is going to be, this is where we're going to formally measure everything from. And Greenwich, England was the one was the air was the position that was selected. So is it any better than any others? No, it just happens to be the one that everybody agrees to. You could redo it now and say, you know, the one that goes through Harrisburg. Define that as zero, and everything's measured as east or west of Harrisburg. Or you could pick one through Tokyo and say East, I mean, it doesn't matter. It's just you have to, everybody has to agree on the same one. That's what astronomers have done in the sky. They've picked one point that they could all agree on that they could measure the points from. Instead of one set of astronomers saying, well, we're going to measure where it is the first for the sun this first day of spring. Someone else saying, no, we're going to do the first day of summer. Someone else doing, no, we're going to do you know, July 13th for whatever reason. You, know. you could pick any position you wanted to. You could pick any of those. You just have to have one that everybody agrees on. And it is measured in time, so right ascension will go from zero, zero time if you're right at the vernal equinox, up and around to almost 24 hours would be back around to the vernal equinox again as you went entirely around the entire sky. So the sky is divided up not only into 360 degrees, but into 24 hours. Again, that's just the measurements. We don't need to go, we're not going to go into a lot of detail other than we do some of the labs. Sometimes you're asked to write down coordinates of some of the objects and you write them down for the right ascension. It'll give them to you in hours, minutes, and seconds. And I just like to make sure you've seen it so you're not getting a surprise as to what does this, what does this mean. 
But that's what astronomers use so we can point out and give a right ascension and declination for an object. An astronomer can observe something interesting and can then communicate, okay, it's at such and such a right ascension, such and such a declination, and any other astronomer in the world can easily tune their telescopes to go look at it. So it's just, it's a way of just like, you know, to give you a latitude and longitude, you can find out exactly where that place is on the Earth, give a right ascension and declination, we can find out exactly where that object is on the sky. Yes, sorry. Um, when you're talking about degrees to measure declination, does that have anything to do with degrees in angular measure? It's the same. It's the same type of degrees. Yeah, so you'd measure it in degrees and minutes of arc and seconds of arc. Okay. So you might say that an object is at, well, this one gives you Betelgeuse. Do that one. At least rough. It says that its right ascension <coughs> is 5 hours and 52 minutes. And its declination is 7 degrees, 24 minutes. Now again, you notice, right ascension, you write it with H and M because it's a time. So you'd write hours, minutes, and I don't have the second values on the top of my head, but whatever the seconds are. When you do it in degrees, you do a degree symbol, this little circle for degrees, one line for minutes, two lines for seconds. So if it was 17 seconds of arc, you'd put 17 like that. Just in terms of writing, it's be how you'd write them. But it's the same stuff that we were using on the previous, previous slide. Okay, anything else? Alrighty. So what do we see in terms of the Earth's orbital motion? Well, the main thing that we see in terms of understanding how the Earth moves is, well, we watch a few things. We watch the sun rise and set, right? And you can explain that as the sun going around the earth and moving, but we really understand that that's just a reflection of the earth's motion. So it's really just the earth moving on its axis, spinning around. And the earth spins on its axis once every 23 hours and 56 minutes. So that's what we call the You'll see this term a few times, the sidereal, no, sidereal day. Sidereal day of the Earth is 23 hours and 56 minutes. That's how long it takes the Earth to go, just to spin on its axis once. Relative, sidereal means relative to the stars. We have another day that we use, which is the one we really use. That's what we keep time by. The solar day is 24 hours. So 24 hours in a day, but relative to the stars, we, we rotate, the Earth really rotates every 23 hours and 56 minutes. Why is there the difference? And it has nothing to, that has nothing to do with leap years. Usually people think that might, that's where the leap year comes from, where we add those extra minutes in. That has nothing to do with this. This is just the days. The leap year comes from another, comes from the actual orbital motion around the sun. But what it is, is that 23 hours and 56 minutes later, it's what this diagram is going to show you here. If we start the Earth here, okay, here's all the stars, very far away, off, way off in the distance. There's the Earth, some point on the Earth is pointing to the Sun. The Sun would be straight overhead at that point on the Earth. One day later, one rotation period of the Earth later, okay, it's gone around, relative to all those stars, it's pointing in the same direction. But the Earth hasn't been sitting still. Okay? The Earth doesn't just sit there and spin around on its axis, you know, like me getting dizzy. 
It, doesn't, it just doesn't sit there and do that. While it's spinning there, it's also moving around the sun. So it's also moved a little bit, not a lot. Takes 365 days to go all the way around, but it's moved about one degree, a little less than one degree, around the sun. So it's not pointing back to the sun again. After one day, it's moved a little bit, so it has to rotate a few more minutes to get the sun back to the same position. So the solar day is what we use for timekeeping. But it's a little bit longer than how, it, how long it really takes the Earth to spin on its axis. And it's just that little bit of extra time here that we're seeing. After the Earth is rotated once, we've gone around one time. Now relative to the stars, the stars are in the same positions. That's pointing in the same direction. But relative to the sun, we haven't quite gotten there yet. We've got to rotate a little bit more. And that's what the top diagram shows you. Just that little bit more of a rotation, four more minutes, in order to get it back pointing at the sun. So there's a sidereal day. 23 hours and 56 minutes, that's really how long it takes the Earth to spin one time. There's a solar day, which is the rotation period measured relative to the sun, which is what we use for timekeeping 24, which is 24 hours. And it really has to do with the fact that the Earth is not just sitting still. The Earth is not only is it spinning on its axis, but it's moving around the sun at the same time. Now the Earth moves, again, it moves around the Sun, and that has an effect on the constellations that we see. You probably recognize these constellation names. They're some of the ones that usually everybody recognizes, right? Scorpio, Libra, Virgo, Leo, Cancer, Gemini, Taurus, Aries. Constellations of the Zodiac. Why are they special? They're special because they're the constellations that the Sun happens to pass through over the course of the year. And if you've ever gone out and tried to look for your constellation, you know, whatever your horoscope says is your constellation, you'll find them very hard to find. Few of them are bright and prominent. Gemini's pretty nice. Taurus is pretty nice. Um, Aries is pretty much invisible, as is Cancer. Libra isn't very much. Scorpius and Sagittarius are pretty nice right now in the evening. You can see those pretty well if you don't live north of Harrisburg. If you live north of Harrisburg and you're trying to look right through the city, they're very low in the south and they're almost impossible to see if you're looking through the city. If you're further south of Harrisburg and off or something, you can usually try to pick them out. But they're only important because they're the ones that happen to lie on the path of the sun. So these are the ones that the sun passed through every year and astronomers, ancient astronomers knew them and that's why they became important, even though some of them are very, very faint, very, very small constellations. There, there's nothing very prominent about Aries, Aquarius, Pisces, Capricorn. There's not a lot of bright stars in them. They don't contain a lot of bright stars. No special, nothing special about them, other than that the sun happens to pass through them at some point during the year. But that position change, that the, but that's what we see. We see a change in the constellations. If you've ever gone out and looked at the constellations, Many of you have probably seen Orion, right, in the winter. You go out in the winter sky in January, you find Orion. You go out and look for Orion right now, it's gone. Where is it? Well, there are times when it's just in the same direction as the sun. So at certain times of year, Orion is over here by Taurus and Gemini. So if the Earth happens to be over here and the sun's in the same direction, well, you're not going to be able to see Orion if it's up during the day. Give it a few more weeks. And you'll start to see Orion a few more weeks out towards the end of the semester. You'll be able to see Orion 
uh, later in the evening sky. By January and February, you'll be able to see it very nicely and prominently in the evening sky. And then it will slowly disappear into the sun again the next year. So it changes and it varies. You can see some of these constellations. At other times, you won't be able to see them because the sun's in the same direction. But these are 12 of the 88 constellations. There's 88 constellations in the sky. These are 12. Again, they're not really special. Or they're, not, they're special because this, this, they follow the path of the sun. And the path is named there. We call it the ecliptic. The ecliptic is the apparent path the sun takes on the sky over the course of a year. Is it really the sun moving? No. We're really seeing the reflection of the Earth's motion. It's really the path the Earth is taking. But we don't see it. We don't see the Earth moving and zipping around the sun. We can't feel it. So when we look at the sky, we watch the path the sun takes. It's the same path, depend, just depending on where you happen to be looking, which, which way you happen to be considering it. So it's the apparent path that the sun takes over the course of a year. Now, the Earth also orbits around, but while it orbits, it's also tilted. So it's the Earth's path around the sun, and it has that tilt to it. Heard the 23 and a half degree tilt of the Earth, right? Probably heard that somewhere along that causes the seasons. So it's tilted at 23 and a half degrees. So not only is the Earth orbiting around the sun, but it's orbiting at a nice angle like this as it walks around about 23 degrees. As that changes, not the angle, but as the orientation changes, that means during the summer, here, that tilt is pointing towards the Earth's axis, or pointing towards the sun. The Earth's axis is pointing towards the sun in the northern hemisphere. So we're pointing more directly at the sun, and we're going to get summer time. Light from the sun is more direct. It's covering concentrated on a smaller area. Sun's up for a longer amount of time. Right? Sun rises at, you know, early in the morning now and sets later in the evening. By the end of the semester, when does it rise? You know, it'll be dark when we come into class almost here. And it will be dark, you know, at 5, 5, 5.30 in the, in the evening. It'll start to set when you get towards December. So, I mean, the, the light of time, the amount of time the sun is up changes and how directly the sunlight hits changes. So those are the two things that together go ahead and end up causing the seasons, cause it to be warmer in the summer and cooler in the winter. I'm sorry. It's okay. So cause it to be warmer in the summer and in the winter. So the combination of those two is what gives us the seasons. The four points of the seasons Again, as far north as you get above it is what we call the summer solstice, summer sun stop. Think about it that way. The sun stops for a minute. It's getting higher and higher in the sky. And then at the first day of summer, it reaches its highest point and starts getting lower. The first day of summer is when it stops. So solstice meaning the sun stop. Southernmost is the winter sun stop or winter solstice. Sun got lower and lower in the sky. On December 21st, it'll reach its lowest point, And then it will start back up again. Except that this is 2012, so we don't have a December 22nd, right? Everything's done on the 21st? Too bad it's after the final exam. So, you know, they could have at least planned this to be before the final, so at least you knew whether they had to bother taking the final or not. So, but no, December 21st, lower, gets as low as it goes. December 22nd, it will start getting back up higher and higher in the sky. The other points where the path crosses the equator are the vernal and autumnal equinoxes. Vernal equinox is the first day of spring. Autumnal equinox, 
first day of fall, first day of autumn. Equinox just means equal, equal day and night. So the first day of spring and the first day of fall are when you have about 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness. If you've got more than 12 hours in the summer, less than 12 hours in the winter. Okay, let's see. That's all I wanted to get on there. All right, then procession. I wanted to mention procession. Procession, again, is like that top. So if you watch a top spin, top spins, it spins very, very quickly. So here's that top spinning, spins very quickly around on its axis. But if you watch the top at the same time, it doesn't just spin and stand straight up, right? It always t it tilts down and then it kind of goes around in a big slow circle while it's spinning. That's what we call <coughs> precession. The Earth is essentially a great big top in space. It's tilted at 23 and a half degrees. It spins once every 23 hours and 56 minutes. So that but it also, that axis, the direction it points, changes and takes, to make one complete circle around, takes 26,000 years. So it changes. Where the Earth's axis is pointing in space is the same now as it was last year. It changed a little bit. Nothing that you'd notice within a lifetime, really. Not very much. But it's slowly changing, meaning that if you could go back 2,000 years, Polaris wasn't the pole star. The Earth's axis wouldn't have been pointing towards Polaris as it is right now, pretty close to it at least. It would have been pointing to nothing. There was no pole star 2,000 years ago. Go back another 2,000 years and there was a pole star. Not Polaris, but another star that the, the pole happened to point very close to, which was Thuban, a star in the constellation of Draco. 2,000 years from now, Well, you're going to be out in where? Out in here someplace? Again, nothing, not much. 8,000 AD, nothing. You get way up there and what, 14,000 14, or so? Vega will actually be the pole star. It'll be relatively close to the pole. What that does is that changes our entire coordinate system all the time. So not do these stars have, an, have a coordinates. They have a right ascension and a declination. But to make it more complicated than latitude and longitude, the latitude and longitude don't change a whole lot on the Earth. The right ascension and declination are constantly changing. Because when you move the pole, you move the position of the pole, you're changing where the right ascension and the declination, where you're measuring everything from. So actually the coordinates change and precession causes those coordinates to change Every year, you know, yearly, they're changed. Astronomers have to update their catalogs. They have programs that will calculate the current position. You know, we say that it's at this location, but it might actually be a few seconds off of that if that coordinate was something somebody did back in the 1950s. The coordinates will actually constantly change because of this precession. All right. Now. How would we orbit around the sun? We had a sidereal day and a sidereal we had a sidereal day and a solar day. We also in terms of years, we have a sidereal year and we have what we call a tropical year.
sidereal year is what we're used to using. How long does it take the Earth to go around the Sun once? Okay, 365 days. Slightly different is the tropical year. The sidereal year stays with, essentially stays with the constellation. The tropical year follows the seasons. So it all has to do with the way that tilt is shifting. As that tilt shifts and it goes halfway around its orbit, all of a sudden our you're switching what stars are going to be visible in which seasons. Okay, July and August will still be summer for us, but now instead of Orion being up in January and February, you're going to see Orion in July and August. You've got to come back in 13,000 years, so you know, put yourself in suspended animation and come back in 13,000 years to be able to see this or expect to live a really, 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 really long life. You know, 13,000 years is usually beyond a lot of what we can, a lot of what we can expect now. But that will change. That will change. It's come back. It changes very slowly. And we see that in terms of the constellations. And in fact, we'll do a lab based on it. Not today. But we'll do another lab that looks at actually the constellations of the zodiac. And I have you go through on the sky program because we can go forward 13,000 years or back 10,000 years and change and see what the sky did look like. And you can actually go back and look, you know, where was the sun? On each, on each day. Where was the sun you know, 500 years ago? When, when did it pass through each of the zodiacal constellations? And you can find out that if you look at them right now and you figure out where the sun was on the day you were born, you're about one constellation off. From what, from what your horoscope says, you know, you look at the horoscope, says, you know, uh, what, March 21st to April 21st is Aries and April is Taurus. Well, you'll find out that you're about one constellation shifted off. Everybody's off about one constellation. Because of precession, what's happened in the time since the uh, zodiac was first developed and the horoscopes were first developed, that's about when it matched up pretty close. But since then, it's changed and it's only getting further and further off. So it'll get further and further off for 13,000 years. Then it will start getting closer and closer again. So you'll actually see that. I actually have you do a lab that goes through and calculates and looks at, okay, where was the sun you know, each day for this year or for a recent year and then for you know, 500 years ago or thousands of years ago. And you can get an effect of what's happening in terms of precession here. All right, moon's motion. The moon has, also has two periods. We had two days, we have two years, how about two months too? We have a sidereal month, told you you'd see that term a few times. Sidereal month, which I'll come back, come back to I think on the next slide or two. But sidereal month is how long it takes the moon to orbit around the earth relative to the stars. So again, sidereal meaning relative to the stars. So that's the true rotation period. How long does it take the moon to go around the earth once? And that's about 27.3 days, plus or minus a tenth or so. So it takes the moon about 27 days to go around the earth once. The synodic month is actually more relative to the sun or it's the relative to the sun or it's the month of phases of the moon and that's about 29 and a half days 
So that's how long it takes the, the moon to go through its cycle of phases. They don't match up. Right? They don't match up for the same reason that the days don't match up. The day doesn't, 23 hours, 56 minutes doesn't match with the 24 days because in the meantime the Earth has moved. Well, the Earth and the Moon have moved quite a bit more in 27 days as the Moon orbits around the Earth. So relative to the stars, it's made its complete orbit, it's done in 27 days. But in order for it to get back into the same position relative to the Sun, it takes 29 and a half days. So, you see where we get the name from, there's the month, the month from the Moon. It's about 30 days, that's why each of our months have right about 30, 30 days. The phases are due to just how we see the moon, where the moon is relative to the sun. When the moon is on the same side of the earth as the sun, if we look at a diagram here, you've got the earth here looking at the moon. Here's the sun way off in the distance there. When it's in the same direction of the sun, most of the part of the moon that's lit up, it, we can't see. It's hiding from us. It's pointing towards the sun. It's not pointing towards us. So we see a very, either no moon or new moon, which isn't visible when it's, very, when it's the closest to the sun, closest to being in line with the sun, or a very thin crescent. And let's see, we're a thin crescent in the picture of the day that we looked at today. We were a slightly thinner, thicker crescent than that. We we're almost up to first quarter when I saw the moon last night. We weren't quite a quarter. We're probably we're right in between this area right now. So if you go out and look at the moon tonight, you're getting a little bit closer to third quarter. You should see about half the moon illum illuminated. Now when the moon is on the other side of the Earth, when the moon is on this side, so now you've got the Earth, the moon, and the sun way over there, the sunlight comes, strikes the moon, bounces back to the Earth, we see a big chunk of it illuminated. That's when we get a full phase, when it's exactly opposite the sun, or what we call a gibbous phase which is when most of the moon is illuminated, more than half. So less than half is a crescent phase, more than half is a gibbous phase. And I don't know if I put that up there, but so crescent is less than half full and a gibbous is more than half. Just means that more than half of the moon is illuminated. Now the other thing that you'll see in the phases is that you'll see them called waxing or waning. Waxing is getting bigger. Okay, no the moon's not getting bigger but the illuminated portion of it is. So right now the moon is waxing. If you go look at the moon, if you looked at the moon a couple nights ago, you would have seen a thin crescent. If you looked at it last night, you would have seen a pretty thick crescent. If you look at it in another day or two, you'll see a quarter, a quarter phase, half of it illuminated. Look at it in a couple more days, it'll be more than half. A week from now, you'll see a full moon. It's getting bigger and bigger. The illuminated portion is getting bigger. That's what we call the waxing phase. Once we get to full moon, it can't get any more full than full, right? You're done. You've got to go back the other direction. And that's what we call the waning. Getting smaller. And again, it's not getting smaller doesn't mean the moon is getting smaller. It means the amount of the moon that's illuminated is getting smaller. So you'll go 
Question? Okay. So what you'll see is a full moon in about a week. And if you watch that, you'll see, you know, a week later, a few days later, it'll start to be a gibbous. It'll get smaller and smaller. And then another week after that, you'll see a half of the moon, only half the moon illuminated early in the morning. And then finally, you'll see a cre very thin crescent phase. And the cycle will repeat itself every month. So I'll just go back through that cycle. Every about 29 and a half days, you will get a new set of phases. You will start the set of phases all over again. Now, we looked again, again, I gave you some of this information here already. The sidereal month is 27, 27.3 days or so. That's how long it takes the moon to make that orbit around. How long does it take it to orbit around once? The synodic month is how long it takes to go through the cycle of phases. The reason for the difference again is just because when you start the cycle of phases you're here, but when you finish it you've moved about one twelfth or one month's worth around the sun. So all the orientation has changed. Our positioning has changing and it takes it a little bit longer to get back to that full phase again. Now the other thing that we'll see in this is when we get things lined up exactly we'll see eclipses. So a lunar eclipse it's a nice easy one to see. Usually lots of people have had a chance to see this one. Anybody seen a lunar eclipse? Maybe? A few? Handful? Okay. Uh, lunar eclipse just means that the moon has passed into the Earth's shadow. The Earth is right between the sun and the moon and the moon is existing in the Earth's shadow. So sun's way off here. The Earth, like any other solid object, casts a shadow into space. The moon is close enough to the earth that it passes into that shadow. You know, this, see the shadow is getting smaller and smaller, eventually it would disappear. But the moon is close enough that it passes into that shadow and when it does, it's no longer being illuminated by the sun. So it's going to get dark. It's going to disappear from, disappear from sight. And that's what the image here is showing, is that as it gets in there you've got a little bit of it still illuminated right around the edge as it's passing into that shadow, but most of the moon is in pretty much in darkness. Now, not completely dark, and that actually tells us about the Earth's atmosphere. Because the Earth isn't just a big rock in space, it's a big rock with some gas around it. And that gas kind of acts like a lens, and what it does is you have sunlight that comes, most of the sunlight gets blocked by the Earth, and if the Earth were just a solid and you could strip the atmosphere off, the Moon would disappear completely during an eclipse. But it, you don't, you do have an atmosphere. Fortunately, you want to keep breathing. But some of that light gets bent by the atmosphere and actually comes in here. And you'll see, just like a sunset looks red, you'll see a deep blood red moon when you get to a to when you get into a total lunar eclipse. Now we're not having one this semester. Actually, we got a couple years before. There are two years. 2014 or 2015, I think, is the next one that's going to be visible from this part of the this part of the world. But there will, be, there will be more total eclipses. The nice thing is that they're very easy to see. You don't need any special equipment like you do for a solar eclipse. You can go look at the moon. It's perfectly safe to look at the moon during an eclipse as any other time. And they're also visible as long as it's dark. And it's dark, it's dark and the moon is up during this, when the lunar eclipse is occurring from your location, you're able to see it. Solar eclipses, which we'll look at here in a minute, are much more specific. You have to be exactly in the right spot on the Earth in order to be able to see them. So, in terms of eclipses, I mentioned up there, you can have a couple different types. 
You could have a total eclipse. Total just means the moon is completely within the Earth's shadow. So it would be completely blocked out. It would look a nice deep blood red completely across there. Partial eclipse would be when part of the moon is in the Earth's shadow. Sometimes the moon only grazes the top of this shadow or only hits part of it. Then you see a partial eclipse. Maybe half of the moon would disappear, but the other part would still be fully illuminated by the sun. So you can have a partial eclipse. In a lunar eclipse, you have two types. You can either have partial or you can have a total eclipse. In terms of a solar eclipse, you get three types. Solar eclipse is when the moon passes between the Earth and the sun. So a lunar eclipse, the Earth is between the sun and the moon. A solar eclipse is when the moon is between the Earth and the sun. And you don't want to think about the third possibility. And if you get the sun between the Earth and the moon, we're in big trouble. Because it would get a little bit, little bit toasty, toasty here. So you don't want to think about that one. But in terms of a solar eclipse, same, same situation happens. It's exactly the same method. The moon is there. The moon is casting a shadow. It's blocking out the light from the sun. And depending on the exact positioning of the sun and the moon, it'll cast a shadow that will strike the Earth. When that shadow strikes the Earth, you can see the, moon, the sun will get completely blocked out. So, I'll ask the other one. Anyone have a chance to see a total solar eclipse? Nobody? Not you did? How was it? Good or? Well, it gets dark, right? It's completely dark in the middle of the day. So good. I think the first time I've actually had somebody who's been able to see one. I've seen pictures of them. I've never actually seen one myself. Um, so you get a total solar eclipse. The sun, com the sun is completely blocked out by the moon. You'd watch the moon slowly passing across the sun. You'd have a bite taken out of it. You'd see something like this. And as it progressed, eventually you'd get to the point where the entire surface of the sun is blocked by the moon for a few minutes. And during that time, it's completely dark. It'll become night. Stars will come out. You know, crickets will start chirping, thinking it's nighttime. Because it's, complete, it's completely blocked out. Now the moon has no atmosphere, unlike the Earth. So you don't have any light coming around the edges of the moon. Now you do see in that one picture where it shows total eclipse that there is a glow there. That's nothing to do with the moon. That's actually the outer atmospheres of the sun. So the sun that you're used to seeing is just the main surface of the sun. There's actually a lot more around it that really you can't see because it's so much fainter than the rest of the sun. So when the sun is visible, all this is just blotted out because it's way too faint to be seen relative to the sun. During an eclipse is one time we can study this, and this is what we call the corona of the sun, the outer layers of the sun. So in a solar eclipse, you can get a partial eclipse. You can have the moon pass over part of the sun. You can have a total eclipse when the moon passes right in front of the sun. And you can have another one which is called an annular eclipse. An annular eclipse occurs because the moon's orbit is sometimes a little further away from the Earth, sometimes a little bit closer. When the moon is a little too far away from the Earth relative to the sun, remember I told you that shadow has a length to it. It's like a big cone sticking out behind the moon. Sometimes it doesn't quite reach the Earth. If that main shadow does not reach the Earth, you won't get a total eclipse. The moon can pass right in front of the sun, but you'll actually get a ring of sun around it. So another cool one to be able to see. 
that you actually see the moon, but it never it won't get completely dark as it would with a total with a total solar eclipse. You'll still have a ring of sunlight around visible around the moon. So for a lunar eclipse, you had two. You had a total and a partial eclipse. For a solar, you get total and partial as well, depending on whether it's completely blocked out or partially blocked out. And you can also get an annular eclipse. You can't get an annular lunar eclipse because of the configurations. Solar eclipses, again, we don't have anything that will be visible here in a, for a while. The next 2024, there's one in 2017 that's going to be, 2017? That's going to be visible from the eastern part of the United States. I think actually the total section goes down through, through Georgia and the Carolinas. It's not going to actually be up this far north. We'd be able to see a partial eclipse but we would not be able to see the total. You'd have to travel to see that. The closest we come is in 2024. In April of 2024, there's one that actually goes through Dallas and then comes up through uh, St. Louis, Toledo, Cleveland, and over northern, over into New York. Not quite here. You can see more of it blocked out, but you don't have to travel too far to have a chance to see a total eclipse in, in that case. You've got a few years to wait. They've got 12, year, 12 years to wait. But there will be those are the next two good total eclipse, good eclipses that are coming up for this part of the this part of the world. Question? Yes, yes, ma'am. That's fine. Can you explain the annular eclipse again? Okay, annular eclipse. What's going on is? Let me see if I can. We have the sun way out here, and we have the moon. Here's the moon, and here's the Earth. Okay. Normally the moon casts a shadow and that shadow will strike the earth. Okay. Where that shadow strikes the earth, that's where you'd see the total eclipse. If you're up here, you're out of luck. It's not going to be total. You've got to be right in that, you've got to be in this cone to see that shadow. Now what happens in an annular eclipse, same configuration except the moon's a little bit further away. So let's do that. Let's make the moon a little bit further away. And now that cone, here's your region to be in where the sun would be completely blocked out. Once you get further in, when you get here, what you're going to see is you're going to see the sun and you're going to see the moon right in front of the sun. The moon's too far away, too far away from us. It looks smaller than the sun, so it can't quite block it out. That works? Okay. All right, let me finish up eclipses here and then we'll uh, take a short break before the lab. Solar eclipse is, again, I went through most of this already. It's, par it's partial. We have the three types. You can have a partial solar eclipse. Only part of the sun is blocked. So you might, depending on your location and the exact positioning, you might block out part of the sun. Total solar eclipse, again, is the rare one. You have to be right in that exact area. It's only a few maybe about 10, 10, 20 miles wide, depending on the exact positioning. It's a relatively thin stretch of land. That way you can see a total eclipse. So you have to be in right in the right location, and you've got to have the right weather, too. That's the other bad thing. They don't happen very often, and you've got to hope you're not cloudy, because if it's cloudy, you're out of luck. So total when it's completely blocked, annular when the moon is too far away from the Earth. So it doesn't quite cover, isn't able to cover the entire sun. You can get some that are pretty close. I've exaggerated it quite a bit in this one. 
It's usually pretty close and there's just a thin ring, but it's enough that you're still not going to get everything completely dark as it would normally, as it would normally get. And let me see what else I had. Let me just check something here. Why do we not get eclipses every month? I got two more. So I'm just going to finish up these two slides then. That'll finish up eclipses. So eclipses don't occur every month because everything isn't lined up. We talk about the solar system and we tend to think about it two-dimensionally. We draw it. You draw the solar system, you put the sun there, and you draw a bunch of circles around it all on a piece of paper. They're really, they're close. That's actually a pretty good estimate, but it's not quite right. Everything is tilted a little bit. So you have the sun and the earth. Well, they form. If you draw the sun and put this earth on a piece of paper, that's completely correct. The sun does orbit. The moon does. Uh, earth does orbit. Get it right eventually. The earth does orbit in a nice little circular elliptical orbit around the sun. But if you try to draw any other orbit, they're all tilted a little bit. And that's what's showing here is that sometimes when, when the eclipse occurs, when the new moon occurs, the shadow is always being cast. But if the moon is tilted and it's up above the Earth's plane, then that shadow casts off into space above the Earth. And it never strikes the Earth, so we won't get an eclipse. Same thing with the full moon. Maybe the full moon is below the Earth. is below the Earth's shadow, and it never passes into the shadow. We don't see an eclipse. Most of the time, that's what happens. Most of the times, that's what will occur, is that we will not get an eclipse because it'll be either above or below. It's only when everything is lined up exactly here or here when we actually can get an eclipse. You have to have all three of the objects in a line. And since they're not in exactly the same plane, you won't be able to, you won't be able to see that. Not in, every, not in every case. So there's times when an eclipse is favorable. What we'd say is a season for eclipses. That's when we can get the eclipses. So you, so you have to have everything lined up and you've got to have the right phase of the moon. If it's, a, if it's not a new or full moon, it doesn't do any good. So if this time occurs at first quarter moon, then you don't get an eclipse either. So that's why you don't hear about eclipses every single month. Right? You, don't get a, you, don't, every, you get a full moon every month. We don't get an eclipse every month because the positioning is not always correct. And sometimes they're only visible over small areas. You might hear that there is an eclipse, but it's visible out over through across China. Well, it's not going to be able to be seen from here. You know, solar eclipse is visible over there, or visible in Australia, visible in Antarctica. There's a lot of times that they occur that you're not going to be able to see them. You get one every five, ten years. It's probably a really good one that's visible from a specific area. Not a total, even just a, par- even just a partial. I've not been able to find out you know, when the next time a total eclipse will happen to pass through Harrisburg you know, could be centuries from now through any specific area. Which is one of the reasons you can understand sort of that you know, ancient people were terrified of an eclipse. They didn't say it happened every month, it would be no big deal. But because they didn't, they were a rare thing. Now this is a set of some eclipse, eclipses coming over the next 20 years. So there's a couple here that I mentioned to you. Okay, it's 2017. I couldn't remember the exact date on that one. That's the next one that's really visible from North America. And it's going to pass across you know, the western and down through St. Louis area and then down, looks like, into the Carolinas probably. So it'll be a little south of us if you're 
moved by then or traveling south, you can get to the eclipse track. You can actually have a chance to see a total eclipse then. The one that's a little bit closer is April 8th of 2024. Comes up through Texas, Mexico and Texas, and then up through by the eastern Great Lakes here. So again, a chance to be able to see a couple of them. Over the next 12 years, we're going to have two that are visible here. Some areas do not get to see any in that time, so depending on exactly where you happen to be located. If you live in Russia, well, there's one up there in the very tip. Of, if you want to go up to northern part of Siberia in 2026, at least it's August and not you know, January or something, you know, there's a chance to see an eclipse. But some areas we're not, are not going to really get, they do not get, are not getting them over the next few, few years. It just depends on exactly the positionings as to when everything occurs. So I'm going to stop there. I've got a few more slides left in this chapter, but I'm going to go ahead and hold those off till, till Monday. So I'll go ahead and take a break here. If you want a few minute break, I'm going to get the stuff ready for lab. So if you need to go stretch or anything, and then we'll come back and finish up and start on the lab.